Chapter thirty two of Norse Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty two The Crowning Sledge Journey. The glorious sun reappeared February eighteenth, tarrying only a moment, but giving a sure prophecy of a coming to stay. Scarcely less welcome was the appearance soon after of Kalutuna, Tatarat, and Miok all old acquaintances whom the reader will not fail to recognize. Kalutuna was Angekok and Nalegak, priest and chief. His gruff old rival, who advised the starvation policy toward the escaping party in the miserable old hut, had been harpooned in the back and buried alive under a heap of stones. These comers brought the much-desired dogs, and they were followed by other old friends from Northumberland Island with additional dog teams. These natives were treated with consideration. They were made content with abundant food and flattered with presents, all of which told favorably upon the success of the enterprise of the generous donors. In the middle of March, the northward excursions commenced. The first consisted of a party of three, Dr. Hayes and Kalutuna driving a team of six dogs, and Jensen with a sledge of nine. It was to be a trial trip, and the experiment began rather roughly. A few miles only had been made when Jensen, whose team was ahead, broke through the ice, and dogs and man went floundering together into a cold bath. The other team, fortunately, was just at hand, so they were drawn out and all returned to the vessel for a fresh and warm start. The next trial, they were gone four days, and traversed the Greenland shore to Cape Agassiz, and to the commencement of the Great Glacier. The cold at one time was sixty-eight and a half degrees below zero. Yet the sun's rays, through even such an atmosphere, blistered the skin. The grains of snow became like gravel, and the sledge-runners grated over it as if running on the summer sand of our own seashore. Kalutuna had an ingenious remedy for this. He dissolved snow in his mouth, and pouring the water into his hand, coated the runners with it. It instantly freezing made something like a glass plating for them. Kalutuna was greatly puzzled in attempting to understand why this journey was made but his perplexity took the form of disgust when the fresh tracks were seen of a bear and cub, and the white chief forbade the chase. He argued in the interest of Dr. Hayes, who might thereby have a new fur coat, pointed to the hungry dogs, and finally pleaded for his own family, who were longing for bear meat, but all in vain. The circumstances had changed since, in the same spot nearly, he had urged the dogs after a bear in spite of Dr. Kane, and thus defeated the purpose of his long trip. On their return, they turned into Van Rensselaer Harbor, the place made so famous by Dr. Kane's expedition. Everything there was changed. Instead of smooth ice, over which Dr. Kane's party came and went so often, there were hummocks piled up everywhere in the wildest confusion. Where the advance was left when her men took a last look at her was an ice-pile towering as high as were her mastheads. Old localities were undiscernible from the snow and icy aggressions. 
A small piece of a deck plank picked up near Butler Island was all that could be found of the advance. The Eskimo told nearly as many diverse stories of her history after the white man left her as there were persons to testify, and some individuals, apparently to increase the chance of saying some item of truth, told many different stories. According to these witnesses, she drifted out to sea and sunk, the most probable statement. She was knocked to pieces so far as possible and carried off by the Eskimo, and she was accidentally set on fire and burned. The graves of Baker and Pierre remained undisturbed, but the beacon built over them was broken down and scattered. The result of this experimental trip was the decision of the commander not to attempt to reach the open polar sea by the Greenland shore, but to cross Smith Sound at Cairn Point, a few miles north of the schooner. To this point provisions were immediately carried on the sledges for the summer journey beyond. On the 3rd of April, the grand effort to reach the North Pole commenced. The party consisted of twelve persons, who were early at their assigned positions alongside of the schooner. Jensen was at the head of the line of march, on the sledge Hope, to which were harnessed eight dogs. Nor came next, the whip of the Perseverance, with six dogs. Then came a metallic lifeboat, with which the polar sea was to be navigated, mounted on a sledge and drawn by men, each with shoulder-strap and trace. Flags fluttered from boat and sledges, all was enthusiasm, and at the word march the dogs dashed away, the men bent bravely to their earnest work, the swivel on deck thundered its goodbye, and the party were soon far away. The very first day's exposure nearly proved fatal to several of the party, one settled himself down in the snow, muttering, I'm freezing, and would have proved in a half-hour his declaration had not two more hardy men taken him in charge. The spirits of the men ran low, and they were two hours in building a snow-hut in which to hide from the pitiless wind. A rest at Cairn Point and increased experience gave them more energy, and the next snow-hut was made in less than one hour. They proved the snow-shovel a fine heat-generator. On the fifth night out, they were overtaken by a storm and were detained two days in their hut. This was a pit in the snow, eighteen feet long, eight wide, and four deep. Across its top were placed the boat oars. Across these the sledge was laid. Over the sledge was thrown the boat's sails, and over the sails snow was shoveled. They crawled into this hut through a hole, which they filled up after them with a block of snow. Over the floor, a leveled snow floor, they spread an india-rubber cloth. On this was laid a carpet of buffalo skins, and over this another of equal size. Between these they crept to sleep, the outside man of the row having no little difficulty in preventing his companions from pulling the clothes off. The wind without blew its mightiest blow, and piled the snow up over the poor dogs, which were huddled together for mutual warmth, and were kept restless in poking their noses about the drift. The cooks were obliged to call to their help the commander in order to keep the lamp from being puffed out, and two hours were consumed in getting a steaming pot of coffee. But after a while the bread and coffee, 
and dried meat and potato hash were abundantly and regularly served and the men contrived to pass in talk and song and sleep the hours of the really dreary imprisonment before the storm had fully subsided the party went on the back track to bring up to this point a part of the provisions they had been obliged to deposit this done they put their faces to the opposite or american side of the sound but the difficulties were truly fearful the ice like great boulders was scattered over the entire surface now piled in ridges ten twenty and even a hundred feet high and then scattered over a level area with only a narrow an ever-twisting way between them. Over these ridges and the sledges had to be lifted, the load often taken off and carried up in small parcels, and the sledges and boat drawn up and let down again. Frequently in the midst of this toil, a man would fall into a chasm up to his waist. Another would go out of sight in one. These terrible traps were so covered with a crust of snow that they could not be discerned. The boat was, of course, capsized often, and much battered. When a ridge had been scaled, and the party had picked their way for a time through the winding path among the ice boulders, they would come to a sudden, impassable barrier, and be obliged to retrace their steps. A whole day of gigantic exertion, and of many miles of zigzag travel, would sometimes advance them only a rifle-shot in a straight line. Of course, it was simply impossible to carry the boat, and it was abandoned. They were yet only about thirty miles from Cairn Point, but had travelled perhaps five times that distance. For several days after this, the heroic explorers struggled on. A fresh snow with a half-frozen crust was added to their other obstacles. Hummocks and ridges and pitfalls grew worse and worse. The sledges broke. The limbs of the men were bruised and sprained, their strength exhausted, and at last their spirits failed. They had toiled twenty-five days, advanced halfway across the sound, and brought along about eight hundred pounds of food. On the twenty-eighth of April, the main party were sent homeward. Dr. Hayes, Nor, MacDonald, and Jensen pushed on towards the American shore. Their way was, as one of the party remarked, like a trip, through New York, over the tops of the houses. They progressed a mile and a half, and travelled at least twelve, carrying their provisions over the ground, by repeating the journey many times. Such was the daily experience, varied by many exciting incidents. Jensen sprained a leg, which had been once broken. The dogs were savage as the wildest wolves with hunger, though having a fair amount of food. Once Nor, in feeding them, stumbled and fell into the midst of the pack, and would have doubtless been devoured as a generous morsel of food tossed to them, had not MacDonald pounced upon them at the moment, with lusty blows from a whipstock. All four of the explorers held out bravely in this fearful strain on mind and body, even young Nor, never shrinking from the hardest work, nor the longest continued exertions. On the 11th of May, the party encamped under the shadow of Cape Hawks on Grinnell Land, off the American coast. The distance from Cairn Point in a straight line northwest was 80 miles. 
They had been traveling thirty-one days, and made a twisting and clambering route of five hundred miles. The travel up the coast had the usual variety of dangers, hairbreadth escapes and exhausting toil. A little flagstaff, planted by Dr. Hayes during the Kane expedition, was found bravely looking out upon the drear field it was set to designate. But the flag it bore had been blown away. Remains of Eskimo settlements long deserted were found. A raven croaked a welcome to the strangers, or it may be a warning, and followed them several days. On the fourth day up the coast, Jensen, the hardiest of the vessel's company, utterly failed. He had strained his back as well as leg, and groaned with pain. What could be done? The party could not proceed with a sick man, nor would they for a moment think of leaving him alone. So the following course was adopted by the commander. MacDonald was left in the snow hut with Jensen, with five days' food and five dogs, with orders to remain five days, and then, if Hayes and Nor, who were to continue on, had not returned, to make his best way with Jensen back to the vessel. The journey of Dr. Hayes and Nor was continued two full days. On the morning of the third day they had proceeded but a few miles when they came to a stand. They had on their left the abrupt, rocky, ice-covered cliffs of the shore. On their right were high ridges of ice, through which the waters of an open sea broke here and there into bays and inlets which washed the shore. Farther progress north by land or ice was impossible. They climbed a cliff which towered eight hundred feet above the sea, whose dark waters were lost in the distance towards the northeast. North, standing against the sky, was a noble headland, the most northern known land, and only about four hundred and fifty miles from the North Pole. The spot on which our explorers stood was about one degree farther north than that occupied by Morton of Kane's expedition yet on the shore of the same open water. Now, if they only had the boat, they were obliged to leave among the hummocks in Smith's Sound, with the provisions and men they had hoped to bring to this point. How soon would they solve the mystery locked up from the beginning, and in the keeping of his frosty majesty of the pole itself? But alas, there were neither boat nor provisions, and the movement of the treacherous flows warned the daring strangers that the bridge of ice over which they had come to this side might soon be torn away and make a return impossible. They built a monument of stones, raised on it a flag of triumph, deposited beneath it a record of their visit placed in a bottle, and turned their faces homeward. End of chapter 32